The point is, you are not too far gone. Revival, what it means is to be brought back to life. It means to be restored. Have you been given new life? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And so tonight, what we're going to be looking at and discovering and trying to understand what revival means to us is the book of Hosea. Now, we're not going to go through all the chapters in the book of Hosea. Uh, we will soon in the Bible study, but uh, for tonight, we're going to be in the first three chapters in the book of Hosea. To give you some understanding of what this book is about and where we're at in history as we approach this book, um, the book of Hosea takes place at this time in Israel's history when it had been broken up into the north and the south. There's a civil war that broke up, broke out after Solomon's reign. When his son took the throne, Rehoboam, he, the, he didn't treat the people well, and there was a split in the kingdom, and all, ten tribes to the north became the kingdom of Israel, and then the tribes in the south became the kingdom of Judah, because Judah is the biggest tribe. Now in the north, it's referred to as the kingdom of Israel, or sometimes the kingdom of Ephraim, because Ephraim was the biggest tribe in the northern kingdom. So this split is hap has happened in Israel's history. But God's judgment is about to come on the northern part of that kingdom. On the kingdom of Israel, or the kingdom of Ephraim, the northern part of the Jewish people. And Hosea is prophesying for about 50 years during that the last 50 years of the northern kingdom before it gets wiped out by the Assyrian kingdom. And so that's when this takes place. If you are looking for some reading material to kind of fill in some of the gaps of what we're talking about tonight, Hosea is prophesying in the northern kingdom to the northern kings, to the northern people of Israel. At the same time that Isaiah and Micah are prophesying in the south. And so that's what is, they're all happening at the same time. So if you're looking to fill in some of the history and the gaps, those are books I would suggest to read to understand what's going on tonight. But we're in the northern kingdom or of Israel or Ephraim, where the capital is Samaria. All right. And this story is odd. All right. It's a metaphor. But it's a metaphor that plays out in real life. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we would see prophets do odd things sometimes. And sometimes what they were doing was a way to get the people to see what God was trying to get them to understand. Sometimes prophets did odd stuff. Now, Zechariah dressed up like a shepherd when he was prophesying about the future shepherd, Jesus, so people could understand that the Messiah would come as a shepherd. Um, Ezekiel did a lot of weird stuff. He ate some unclean food. He he laid on his side for hundreds of days as a way to show the people the suffering that Israel would go through or that the Messiah would go through. 
And so sometimes prophets do weird stuff. Sometimes they just do things that make a metaphor to help you understand what they're doing. Moses himself made a bronze serpent as the people were getting snake bitten wandering through the wilderness. And as their heels were getting bitten by snakes, they were dying. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and lifted it up on a stick and said, if you look at this, you will be healed. Now that was for them. They were getting killed by snakes and they were looking up at a snake on a stick to get them healed. So they, they were visualizing what God was doing. But it also happened to be a future prophecy about sin being lifted up on a stake to heal God's people, which is Jesus. So sometimes prophets do odd things or do visualizing things to help people understand what God is trying to say. In Hosea's case, it's the worst. Because Hosea is not just play acting something. Hosea is not making a symbol. It's actually Hosea's whole life is going to turn into a metaphor or a parallel for how God is going to speak or judge the people of Israel. And so this is a message to the people of Israel, and it plays out through Hosea's life. And so the first three chapters are about Hosea's marriage, which is the metaphor of how God is dealing with his people Israel. Now, just because this is a message that's meant for the Israelites, doesn't mean that there's not something we can glean from it and gather as principles to understand how God is and how he acts and how the story of salvation or restoration works. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Now, before we dig into it, there are some things you should know. The pronunciation for his name in Hebrew would be Hosea. It's virtually spelled identical to Yeshua, which is Joshua. And so if you transliterated it into the Greek, it would actually be Jesus is the name of this book. So it's one of two books that has the name of our Savior on it, even though it's about an Old Testament character. And so that's something to take note of because that will come into play as we go through the story this evening. So life as a metaphor is about to happen. Let's look at Hosea's poor situation. So, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, the kings of Israel. So all that first verse is doing is letting us know when this is taking place, which is how we know it takes place at the same time as Isaiah and Micah. It's during those days, during those kings, leading up to 722 BC, when the Assyrians take out the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 2, when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So we're only two verses in, but we've got a lot to say. So Hosea is commanded by God to be an example, to be a living example of what is happening between the relationship of God and his people. And so what God has told Hosea to do is to take a wife who is promiscuous, 
who is an adulteress. Now, whether that means God is telling Hosea to marry someone that God knows is going to cheat on him, or God is saying this woman has already been promiscuous, and he's, at, he's asking Hosea to rescue her from that, either way, the principle is the same. God is not shocked by our failures. God wasn't shocked by Israel's failures. And Hosea is asked to marry her, to bring her out of this life of promiscuity and to redeem her from that and bring her into a loving relationship. And so the point is, you are not too far gone. If what God is saying to Hosea is that, Hosea, not only are you going to love this person whose back is turned to you, not only are you going to love someone who's given themselves over to a lot in this world, they've given themselves over to other men. Not only are you going to like them, take care of them, but you're going to marry her, bring her into your home, and redeem her from that life. So if you've ever felt like, I need to get my life in order so that God will love me, I will worry about going to God when I get it right because he can't possibly forgive me now. He can't possibly love me now. You are wrong. You are not too far gone. In fact, what the book of Romans tells us in chapter 5, verse 8, is this. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't do it for us because he knew we would get ourselves together. He did it for us while we were sinners, while we were opposed to him. God, Jesus Christ, died for us. In fact, when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees, when he was eating dinner with someone he would call a disciple, Matthew the tax collector. It says in Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13, it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The people who took care of the law were looking at what Jesus was doing. He was sitting with the people they condemned because he knew how much they lived in sin. But Jesus' response was, when he heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you think you can work your way to God, you've got it backwards. You'll never make it. But if you repent from the life that is opposed to God and turn your heart to him, he will save you and redeem you and give you the strength and clean you up from the inside out. It's not something you do on your own. You're not too far gone. In fact, Jesus wants you to, wants you to meet him where you're at. We sang that song tonight, You Are More by 10th Avenue North. And it says, you are more than the choices that you've made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You've been remade. That was a song that I used to play a lot when I led worship for a recovery ministry called Celebrate Recovery. 
It became an anthem for people who had started giving their hearts to Jesus and trying to give up their addictions. To get away from drug addiction and alcohol addiction, they were leaving that stuff at the door, not because they had straightened themselves out, but because they had turned to Jesus and Jesus was healing them. That's the point here. You are not too far gone. Have you been remade? Have you been restored? Have you been given new life? And so we pick up in verse 3 in the book of Hosea. It says, He went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son, then said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now what the name Jezreel means, because remember, Hosea's life is meant to be a metaphor, a real life metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel. And so he says, name your firstborn Jezreel, which means scattered to the wind. And so what God is saying is the people of Israel are about to be scattered. I am bringing judgment on them and they are about to be scattered. And before the end of Hosea's ministry in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and took out the northern kingdom and scattered them across the Assyrian empire. So that happened. It says in verse 6, She conceived and bore a daughter, conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, to Hosea, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now, lo ruhama means no mercy. God is removing his mercy from the people in the north. Now, the beginning of this story is a little dark. doesn't feel like we're talking about redemption. Hang on to your seats, because we're going to get there. But he's saying we'll have no mercy. But he says he's going to save the house of Judah. Now, what actually happened, and you can read about this in 2 Kings, is that when God took the Assyrian Empire and let them take out the northern empire, the, the northern part of Israel, when they went to attack the kingdom of Judah, it says that the angel of the Lord came down and wiped out thousands of the Assyrian army before they made it to Judah. So they turned their backs and ran. So God saved the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, when he let the Assyrians take away the northern kingdom. Now, all of those who were faithful to God in the northern kingdom had actually migrated to the southern kingdom because they wanted to continue to worship God at the temple. And we're told about that in the books of Chronicles. So God is taking care of those who are faithful to him, but he's scattering the rest to the wind, and he's not having any mercy at this point. Now, when she had weaned Lo-Rahama, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And lo ami means not mine. So just like it says there, I'm turning my back on you. 
you have, he is handing them over to their own desires, their own pagan worship and desire to worship false gods and to not follow God. He's handing them over to that, and he's saying, you're, you're not mine. I'm scattering you to the wind. But Hosea has married this woman, and now he's naming the kids what's going to happen to the future of Israel. And these things happen. It says, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up to the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So what's happening? Well, I skipped a verse. Verse 10, it says, The number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass that in that place where they were judged, they will come back. In that place where they, will, they were judged, they'll not only come back, they will be called his people. Great will be the day of Jezreel. And so now the name Jezreel, which means scattered, is actually talking about the people coming back to the valley of Jezreel in Israel. And Jezreel, not, becomes, which was a curse, now becomes a blessing. Because God is saying, I will bring them back. In, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. God's mercy comes back. Now, when it comes to the people of Israel, this is because of a covenant God made with Abraham, an unconditional covenant that the people would always dwell in the land of Israel. Now, there were some conditions to other covenants that got them kicked out for periods of time, but God has promised the people of Israel that they will always be in the land. And so they keep coming back, and God keeps his promises. So what has happened? Hosea has married an unfaithful woman, a promiscuous woman. And that is relevant to the fact that the people of Israel were worshiping other gods, were worshiping false gods, were turning their backs away from Yahweh. And that is spiritual adultery. And so... He's married this adulterous woman, poor Hosea. And here's where it picks up in their relationship, and we see more of the parallel between Hosea and Gomer and Israel and God. In verse 2 it says, Bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her in the day she was born and make her like a a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread, my water, my wool, and my linen, my oil, and my drink. So what this is saying is Hosea's wife is going to leave him and cheat on him with multiple men because they give her things, material goods. And so she's becoming very materialistic and greedy, and she's chasing after those things and seeing that as love. And what it means for the people of Israel is they're actually saying what God has given them, the blessings that God has given them, the land, the livestock, the milk and the honey, the kingdom, and that they're actually attributing all of their blessings to false gods. 
They're taking what God has given them and thanking other gods for it. Now, sometimes we do that now. Sometimes we believe in ourselves. We forget that it was God who gave us breath in our lungs, that gave us a certain skill set or an ability to learn. God gave us the breath, the skills, the talents to be able to do the things that we do. Yet we think it's only us that earned us that paycheck, or it's only us that got that house, or only us that got made those kids. But it was God who provided us with everything to be able to do that, and he deserves the worship for it, not the self or something else. But it says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, new wine and oil, which multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. So what's happening is this. Hosea, in his love for Gomer, as she has cheated on him and slept with other men, even married some of them, even though she's still married to Hosea, been in their household, taken gifts from them, what's actually happened is Hosea has brought gifts to them and said, take care of Gomer. He loves her so much, he's given them the things to take care of her while she is mistreating him. But they, the other men, are taking the gifts that Hosea has given them to take care of Gomer and taking credit for it and then also sacrifice those things to false gods. And Gomer has bought it hook, line, and sinker, thinking that the world is providing for her what Hosea is providing for her. Or in our case, that the world is providing us with the things that God is actually providing us with. And they're giving credit to false gods. So what's the point here? What God has provided was given over to worship false idols, false gods. And what God gave, others tried to take credit for. That will happen. Pride will swell up. And we will try to take credit for what God has done. And it says, therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, <clears throat> her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot. 
So in the midst of all of this provision that she's gotten, she's forgotten Hosea, giving credit to the other men. And Hosea and God are both saying to Gomer and to Israel, no more, you're getting cut off so that you can see what's really happening. Sometimes when things don't go well, it's not God's judgment on you as much as he's just helping you understand that you've paved a way for yourself and now you get to reap the repercussions of that so that you can go back to where you need to be. And this is where Gomer's at. It says, therefore, I will allure her. Will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth and in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me master. Now what's happening there is God is saying about the people of Israel and to Hosea about Gomer is that there's going to be something inside that wants them, they want to come back. He's creating an opportunity for them to want to come back home. And he says, you will call me my husband. You will have a relationship with God, not just a knowledge of him. You will have a relationship with Hosea Gomer, not just food on the table, but a real relationship. You will have a relationship with God, Israel, not just a checklist of the law to follow. You will love God, call him your husband, and no longer call me my master. Now that word is Baal. It's the same word that they gave to false gods. And so what God is saying is you will no longer have me as one of many gods you will recognize me as the only God, the one true God, and you will set me above the other gods that you have worshipped. That's what's going on here. And so, I will take from her mouth the names of the bells, so they will no longer, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. He's removing that from their lips, and their only concern is for Yahweh. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle. I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down and safe, uh, down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. That sounds like you're reading from the New Testament, does it not? God is saying, God is saying to this unfaithful person who now has a desire to have a relationship with them, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. I will say to those people who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. So after they were scattered and handed over to their own desires, 
and to the false worship that they've had, and judgment has come on them. And God has given them over to that and allowed them to reap the repercussions of their behavior. And they start to see it. And they remember how good it was to be with God. And they start turning their hearts back to him. God is ready for his mercy to be abundant and flow over them again. So what he once called no mercy, he's now calling mercy, come back to me. It is true that the sin in our lives leads to rough times. That's the thing about sin. It's fun in the moment, but over a period of time, it leads you down a path of destruction because it's only temporary pleasure and long-term devastation. But a path to righteousness is short-term resisting the temptations of the world for long-term having it better off resisting the ills of the world or the greed of the world. Imagine, here's an easy example for you to understand what I'm saying. Imagine you really want something badly. And the greed in you and the envy in you is like, this is something my neighbors would have. Who knows what it is? The zero-turn lawnmower. I don't know. The new nice car. Someone's got a Tesla in my neighborhood. How nice would that be, right? Something, something like, I would like that. Now imagine the greed and envy inside of you that would like to have the, the comforts of this world or the excesses or luxuries says, I won't spend money I don't have. Now, if you were to give in to the envy, you could put yourself in debt for a lifetime. So you get a short-term pleasure, but long-term regret because you'll never pay it off. But if you save until you can afford it, you're resisting the temptation to have pleasure in the immediate and you actually have the things you can afford down the line. That's the difference between a life of sin and a life of righteousness. You're willing to resist the temptations of the world for a long-term payout because you get eternity with God you get eternal life rather than pleasure in the temporary. This is all playing out. And we come to chapter 3, which is very short. So there's not much longer left, I promise you. It says, verse 1, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is, not, who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord. Uh, for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. So Hosea is being told by God, remember Hosea's name, Hosea, translates to Jesus, okay, is being told that this adulterous woman, this woman who's turned her back on him, turned her back on the relationship that he offered her, she's now in bondage. Because of everything that she's gone through and the litany of relationships and the things that she's chased after, she has now become worthless to the world. None of the men want her anymore, and now she's up for slavery. Because Hosea purchases her for the price of a common female slave. And he buys her back 
Now, if you don't get the connection yet, let me read something to you. This is Matthew 27, verses 3 through 7. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had condemned, he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. So then he threw down the 30 pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. So this is Judas who has betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. When he betrays Jesus, he finds out that Jesus gets arrested and is now getting condemned to death. And he's a little bit regretful that he got so greedy with this money. And he realized he betrayed someone who's innocent. And so he says to the chief priests, take the money back. And he throws the silver back at the Pharisees. And they take it. They can't put it back into the temple treasury, so they buy a field with it. What is the point of all this? Well, the price for a guilt offering, meaning a guilt offering is a sacrifice for sin that you both are aware and unaware of when you bring a sacrifice to the temple. That guilt offering must be paid for by its value in silver. Meaning, you bring an ox to the temple, and you say, not only is it my ox, but it's a guilt offering. So I'm not only bringing the temple the ox, I'm also paying the value of the ox to the temple, even though it's my property. So Jesus was paid for. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was paid for in 30 pieces of silver because Judas threw it back at the temple. You know how much 30 pieces of silver or what that reference is in the New Testament era? The common price for a slave. And Hosea, Hosea bought his wife back for the price of a common slave. He redeemed her for the price of a slave. Jesus redeemed us at the price of a common slave for some silver interesting that this book is named Hosea or Jesus. He said, I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be towards you. So her heart had decided to get away from the, the situation she was in. She had started to recognize things were better with Hosea, but she ended up, as she started to turn back, in slavery. Because she had no redemption. All of the goods that she had, that she thought her husbands were giving her, or these other men were giving her, actually came from Hosea. And they put them up and they sacrificed them to false gods, so she had nothing left when she left them. And so she ended up in bondage and slavery because of her poor decisions. That happens in life. 
Sometimes our poor decisions lead us. We are slaves to sin because of the bad decisions that we make. It puts us in debt. It gives us addictions. It makes us gain weight. It does all kinds of things to us. It puts us in relationships we shouldn't be in. It puts us in situations we shouldn't be in when we make poor decisions that we end up being slaves to. And this is where she's at. But Hosea comes along and he pays the price for her. Because his love has nothing to do with her failure. Do you understand what that means? Because this is about God's relationship to his people. God's love for you has nothing to do with your failure. All it takes is the moment for you to turn your heart to him. And he's right there with open arms. Ready to bring you in. Ready to bring you new life. It's repentance. That's the point. It said, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod, ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now this is a message for Israel. A message for Israel for the end of times that their hearts will be turned back to God at the end of days. And when Jesus returns, David will sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and Jesus will sit on the throne of the world. And it's a message for them. But the first three chapters, as much as this is just a message for Israel, there's so much we can glean from here. What has happened? God has shown his love for us. Love for his people while they were sinning against him. In the fact that he had Hosea marry a promiscuous woman. Someone whose heart was not given to him, he married her anyway. Because his love has nothing to do with your failure. That doesn't mean that he's not going to let you reap what you sow. That if you make poor decisions or you give yourself over to sin, that he's not going to hand you over to it and let you stay there. Are you going to turn away from it and come back to him or not? That's the question. And when you do, when you show that repentance and you turn your heart back to him, he's right there and he paid the price. It cost Judas in silver coins the price of a common slave. It cost Jesus separation on the cross from the Father for the moment he took on the sin of the world. And it cost him torture and pain and death. But then he defeated death and resurrected, and was brought back to life. Because Jesus defeated death and has eternal life, he now has that to offer to all of us. And he's asking you, because revival starts with being renewed, and being renewed by him. Do you want to be renewed? Because he has new life to offer you. He has something to give you eternal life if you want it. Are you willing to turn away from the world and turn yourself to God? If you're willing to do that, that's repentance. And he's right there. And the price has been paid waiting for you to give you new life. And so I'm going to close with this. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a baptism. We're going to have a baptism because in someone's life here in this church, they made that choice.
to turn from the world and put their heart at Jesus because they saw the reality of the cross. That it takes away the stains of life because God's love had nothing to do with his failure. But redemption came at a price, and that price was paid on the cross, and it was given to him freely. And so we're going to be celebrating that new life being given because of the cross in a couple of weeks. And I can't think of a better way or a better thing to conclude our series on revival on. And if that's also something you're thinking about, let us know. Because new life is available. And there's a whole community out there that needs it too. So let's be willing to share it. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this series. Thank you for the book of Hosea. Thank you for being willing to pay the price of the cross, for being willing to redeem us, for being so careful in your planning that you knew where the silver would end up to fulfill the prophecies that needed to be fulfilled so that we could have eternal life. God, I ask that we all take inventory and ask the question, have we been renewed? If not, why not? And if you have, what's next? God, we love you, and we ask that you help us reach this community with new life. In your name, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.